Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission is to connect the disconnected to a growing relationship with God. You can connect with God, and we can help. Well, you know, when I, uh, when I go out to breakfast, I just got to tell you, ordering is easy for me. Because if it's not gluten that you can put syrup on, it's just not breakfast. It's dinner. And, uh, you know, if I was really transparent, I would tell you, I actually prefer breakfast for dinner. Is anyone with me? Yeah, a couple of us love breakfast for dinner. And now this is kind of my inclination. I bend towards sweets. Now, fortunately for me, I'm married to a nurse who is very particular about healthy eating. So when, when we go to the grocery store, you know, we don't buy bacon, we buy grass-fed beef. And uh, we don't buy Oreo cookies, we buy organic carrots. Now, what this means is like when I come home from work and I'm looking to grab a quick snack from the pantry on my way back out the door to go to the gym, you know, something like a Snickers disguised as a protein bar. That's what I'm looking for. I'll open the pantry and then I just close it empty handed every single day because you could just say the dried seaweed chips aren't doing it for me. (laughs) Now, while this may be a loss for my taste buds, it is a win for my waistline. And this out of sight, out of mind strategy works great at home. But when our family goes to have a meal with her family, all bets are off. Like if my sister-in-law brings her chocolate chip cookie ice cream cake, oh, you bet I'm having some. And I will definitely have the scoop of homemade whipped cream. And then I figure, you know, everyone's kind of wrapping it up. I'll look over at the dish and it's like, oh, there's one more, you know, serving left. We're going to have to wash that thing. I'll take one for the team. There are days where I will be driving to community group. When we have a meal at our community group, and I'll be thinking in my head, I'm going to be good. I'm going to be good. I'm going to be good. I'm not going to have any dessert today. And then as soon as we have the meal and I see people enjoying dessert, I've got to have some. And the justifying just continues because I, I figure, well, I didn't have any dessert last night, so I'll have a little extra tonight. I got to tell you, the sweet tooth struggle is real. And you know what struggle is also very real? The sin struggle. Doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. It's tempting to judge others. Uh, Whether we follow Jesus or not, it's hard not to worry. Doesn't matter whether you're a pastor or not. It's hard not to compare oneself with others. The sin struggle is very real. And in church, when we talk about Jesus forgiving our sins... We often will implicitly imply something, and sometimes we'll even explicitly state it, this idea that once Jesus is in our life, like sin will no longer be a struggle. And that would be great if it was like our reality, but our experience tells us that sin is still a struggle. Now, some of us Christians, we are really good at hiding this sin struggle, but it's still there. Now, Scripture doesn't avoid this, like it's the plague or taboo. Scripture actually calls it right out. 
and in so doing reveals the way to hope, though the way to become more like Jesus. You see, Paul addressed this tension that we all feel, whether we're following Jesus or not, this tension that we feel of, of we want to do the right thing, and yet we find ourselves at times doing the exact opposite. And Paul addressed this tension and provides a helpful way forward in what he said next to his letter to the Romans. So if you've got a Bible with you, I would invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 7, where Paul addresses this struggle that we all face with sin. Now, if you need a Bible or a place to jot down notes, you can download our free church app. Just search Connect Church Community, phone's app store. It, I say that every week because if you click on that button in the app, it'll bring you right to the passage we're, we're talking about, a place where you can jot down notes. So if that's helpful, you can follow along there. Now, we've been in this good news series for uh, several weeks now, and we will be for a while longer because we all need good news. We need good news after the last couple of years in the disease that's just swept through our world. We need good news after this past week with the devastation in Texas. We need good news. We're in desperate need of good news. And amidst all this bad news, there is good news. And it's the good news that trumps all the other good news is that we could talk about. And it's the good news of Jesus. It's the gospel. And some of us, we need to hear the gospel and respond to the gospel for the very first time. And there are many of us in this room who we've heard the gospel, we've responded to the gospel, and we need to rehear the gospel and be reminded of the gospel and let it take a deeper root in our life because, yes, Jesus saves us from our sin, and he's the one who's going to work in us. His spirit is going to work in us to transform our lives, as we're going to see today. Now, before we jump into what Paul had to say about all of this, would you bow your heads? Let's pray together and ask that God be the one who speak to us. Lord, we come before you, and we um, first, we want to lift up those who uh, lost their lives in the families of those kids in Uvalde. Would you please comfort them? And would, would you bring good news into their life? And for those of us who are facing anything, um, whether it was a great week or, or, or a hard week, would you speak to us now and would you reveal Jesus to us in a fresh way? And would he be the best news that we could ever hear? We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So after making a point in the previous chapter in Romans 6, Paul made this point that the life we've been given should shape the life that we then live. After making that point, Paul then spent a whole chapter, Romans chapter 7, talking about how hard that actually is. And here's how he kicked it all off. Now in Romans 7, we're going to pick up in verses 1 through 3. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. Paul's addressing 
specifically the, the Jewish Christians and maybe the Gentile Christians who understood the, the Jewish law. And he's using it as an example to prove a point. And his point is that as soon as one dies, the law no longer has authority over their life. Death frees one from the law. Now, that's an important principle to keep in mind because of what Paul says next. Now, in verses 4 and following. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not the old way of the written code. The the good news of Jesus is that we're no longer under the law. We're now under grace. And we need that. You see, the the law was recorded in our Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. It recorded what it looked like to relate with God. God set out some parameters, some guardrails to help his people understand what it looks like to relate with him and relate with others in a way that's honoring to him and honoring to those around them. And the law revealed that none of us can do that perfectly. We've sinned. We've fallen short. But we're no no longer a slave to sin and we're no longer uh, subservient to the law. We don't have to just, you know, try harder to obey or, or perform perfectly or do the religious duty. We're now under grace. You see, uh, b- before we knew Jesus, we were stuck in our sin. Our sin separated us from God. We were disconnected from Him. We were designed to have a relationship with God. But these things that don't honor God kept us from His presence. But Jesus sacrificially died for our sin. He freed us from the law. And like we talked about last time, we've been baptized, we've symbolically died to that way of life, and we have risen anew to this new life with Christ. That's what baptism symbolizes. We're we're freed from sin and the, the, the law, which spotlights that sin in our lives, and instead we get to walk in the Spirit. And may we never forget, this walk is a walk of grace, not guilt. We're going to still blow it at times, but there is still grace for us. There's still forgiveness. And even more, now we get to bear fruit for God, as Paul just wrote. What is this fruit that we bear? Well, when Scripture, especially the New Testament, when it talks about bearing fruit as a follower of Jesus, it often refers to one of two things. The first is Christ-like character. We think of things like the fruits of the Spirit. We start to become more and more like Jesus. The second thing is more Christ followers. As we follow Jesus, others should be inspired to follow Jesus too. This is the fruit that we bear by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. No longer are we a slave to the the shoulds and the should-nots. Instead, we get to walk in the Spirit. We don't have to earn God's approval. We get to walk in His grace. Now, the law was never intended to have power over us. And yet, many of us have had that experience where we feel like we've got to perform in a certain way. We've got to check certain boxes. Well, Paul addresses the law and, and 
the nature of it and what he said next. Now in verses 7 through 12. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And though the commandment put me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. What's Paul getting at here? He's saying the law doesn't have power to save us. But the law does serve a purpose, and the purpose of the law is to reveal what it looks like to relate with God who is holy and pure, and in so doing, it reveals our sin, how we fall short. Paul used the 10th commandment here, you shall not covet. Maybe you remember the 10 commandments, you might have had to memorize them for school or Sunday school, or maybe you've just heard them before. He uses the 10th commandment to illustrate the fact that it was in God declaring this, in him sharing this truth with his people, they know and we know that we should not long for our neighbor's house or dream about our neighbor's wife or want anything that's our neighbor's. Because when we do that, it's going to dishonor God. It's also going to create relational friction in our life. And he's given us these boundaries, these guardrails to protect us, to lead us towards life. Because may we never forget how Paul closed Romans chapter 6. He said, for the wages of sin is death. You see, if we're left on the course that we're on, our course ends in destruction, ends in death. But there is hope, there is good news. The law has purpose to reveal sin, but it should never have power over us. I think of it kind of like my phone. I love my phone. My phone lets me FaceTime with my family who live back in Maine. I can keep up with my friends on Instagram from college. Like I can do a lot of really good things with my phone. And I hate my phone because my phone also keeps me from talking to the person behind me in line at Starbucks. And it keeps me from engaging with my girls at the playground. My phone, it's basically morally neutral. But the way I approach my phone either has great purpose or has power over me. And the same is true with the law. You see, the the law reveals what it looks like to relate with God. But if we assume that the law is the way we get to God, like our obedience to the law, that's how we can have a relationship with God. We become enslaved to that way of living. We can never perform well enough. It's exhausting. The, the law points out that we're sinful and that we need saving, but it's not obedience, it's not religious duty that's going to get us to God. Jesus gets us to God. But if we believe it's the law, we get tripped up. Paul continued, verse 13, did that which is good then become death to be? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, 
It used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become, uh, might be utterly sinful. The law shouldn't have power over us, but the law should serve its purpose in our lives. And I want to give you a moment just to reflect on your own life. I'm going to ask you two questions. You're not answering out loud, so don't worry. This is just between you and God. No, you know, elbowing your person next to you. None of that. We're just going to reflect, okay? And we're going to see, you know, is God's word, is it serving its intended purpose in your life? Okay? So when, when you read scripture, are you convicted of sin? And, and when you think of your life, is your life one in which you're living it in the guardrails of Scripture? Like, are you within those parameters? Or are you like, I know Scripture says something over here, but I'm doing this completely other thing. Personally, there have been mornings where I wake up after a disagreement, a fight, really, with Amanda. And I will sit down and I'll read something like uh, Proverbs 15.1. I'm just going to read it for you. This is just It'll, it'll strike me. It says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And I read that, and I'm just cut to the heart because I realize I should have listened better. I should have been more compassionate. I should have been kinder in what I said. So when she gets up, I get to start my day by apologizing. And the embarrassing thing about all of this, it's probably not the first time that I'm apologizing for whatever I'm apologizing for. Because the problem isn't knowing what's right. Like, I've read Scripture. I'm very familiar with a lot of what Scripture says. I know what I should do. I know I, how I should be a good husband. And yet, there are days where I don't do it. And that's the struggle with sin, isn't it? Paul shared his own struggle this way, verses 14 through 20. Try to stick with this because it becomes a tongue twister very quick. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Just be glad you don't have to read that three times fast. It's a tongue twister. And honestly, I kind of appreciate that it reads that way because life feels that way. There are so many times where we want to do the right thing, but we don't. We do the opposite. There are times where we know the right thing to do and, and, and we have the best motives and, and still it doesn't, doesn't happen that way. We've all had this aggravating experience where we, we, we seek what's good and yet we do what's wrong. So what do we do with this? Because we know we shouldn't judge. And yet, Christian or not, that comment we made to our spouse was definitely judgmental. Uh, we know we shouldn't lie, but we stretch the truth. Okay, we flat out lied. 
to protect ourselves at work. Knowing the right thing and doing the right thing is very different. Our struggle with sin is very real. And it's because we live in this tension. We live in the tension of the already and then the not yet. You see, the gospel is that we are already, as soon as we receive Jesus, let him forgive our sins, we are already forgiven for our sin. Like when God looks at us, if we've received Jesus, he doesn't see our sin anymore. He sees Jesus standing in our place. That's what scripture tells. And yet at the same time, the gospel is also that we are being transformed to become more and more like Jesus. And this takes time. This is the not yet portion. And the the idea being that as the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit works in us, we start to look a lot less like our sinful selves and we start to look a lot more like Jesus. So now when the world looks at us, no longer is the world going to see our sin. The world's going to see Jesus in us. And this takes time. And we're living in this tension already, not yet. We've been saved. And yet we're also being sanctified. That's the theological term that scholars will use, theologians use, for this process of being made holy, being transformed to be like Jesus. It takes time. It can be very aggravating because we know the right thing to do. We want to do the right thing, and yet we don't do it. Sometimes we do the opposite. The problem arises when we let Jesus save us from our sin, but then we try to sanctify ourselves by our own effort because we're never intended to do that. You see, the gospel continues. The gospel doesn't stop at salvation. The gospel continues forever. And that's really good news because it's not dependent upon my good works, your hard effort, checking boxes, religious duty. It's not dependent on those things. Our transformation, just like our salvation, is dependent upon Jesus and no one else. And he gives us his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to empower us, to transform us, to convict us of sin, to point us to Jesus. So no matter how hard we try, our power's not going to be enough. But the Holy Spirit's power, oh, a lot can be accomplished by his power. And what I appreciate about Scripture is that it speaks very plainly about this struggle that we all face. And we don't need to hide because there is hope. And Paul kind of fleshes that out. He he speaks authentically about how this all feels and what he said next. Now in verses 21 through 24, he says, So I find uh, find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Do you ever ever feel like that? Because I sure do. It's like, why did I say that? Why did I do that? Why did I blow it again? What a wretched man I am. And as long as we rely on our own effort, our own willpower, we're going to continue in this cycle. Well, we try to do better, but we don't. Sometimes we get it right, sometimes we don't. But like Paul, may our inability to transform ourselves 
not just leave us wallowing in despair. May our inability lead us to ask what Paul asked, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? He concluded with this, thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ or Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. The bottom line, whether you're exploring faith, whether you're following Jesus, disconnected, connected, the bottom line for all of us is this. The law reveals our problem, but only Jesus resolves our problem. So stop trying to be good enough. Stop trying to be worthy of love. Stop trying to perform perfectly. Stop trying to change yourself by just trying harder. Stop trying to do what only Jesus can do for you. Because Jesus saves you from your sin. And Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit to transform you, to transform me. And not just into some better version of you, but so that we look more like him. And when the world sees him in us, they're going to want to know him too. Now, what does this look like? This life in the spirit? Well, that's where Paul goes in Romans chapter 8. So we're going to talk about that next time. But for now, know this. The answer to your transformation, to your salvation, it's not more obedience. It's more dependence. So stop relying on your willpower and instead seek the Holy Spirit's power. Let me pray for us. God, we need you to work in us towards that end. Because each day we feel this struggle where we want to do the right thing and yet we don't do it. We want to say the right thing and yet we don't. Uh, would you, would you work in us, Holy Spirit? Would you draw us closer to you? Would you help us to look more and more like Jesus and a lot less like our, our sinful self? And as we look more like Jesus, would those around us, our friends, our family, our co-workers, would they want to come to know you too, Jesus? We ask this in your name and for your glory. Amen. Amen.